0: Hey, I'm glad to be with you guys. I've been sick for like two and a half months. I'm now on the antibiotic that they give to people who've been exposed to anthrax. So if there is any type of exposure to anthrax, come to my house. I will sell you some drugs on the black market. Just a little piece of information. So we're starting our Christmas uh, teaching series called The Gift of... The, what is it called? God's... <laughs> god's i've been sick, so just give me a minute god's gift this christmas isn't it? Thank you oh thank you and i was i it got me thinking about how Christmas has changed for me. When I was a little kid, of course, Christmas was all about the gifts, and I couldn't wait until December 25th. We opened ours Christmas morning, and I remember I was so anxious about it coming um, that I made a little file cabinet for myself with little files in it with um, an activity that I was going to do each day, December 1 through 25th, so that that would keep my mind off Christmas coming and help it come faster. I was kind of a neurotic slash dorky child i also i hated trying to fall asleep christmas eve is anybody else like this i could never fall asleep so all throughout that day christmas eve day i would walk around and then occasionally just fall on the ground and close my eyes and my family would be like what are you doing and i'm trying to see if i'm tired yet and i never was it was awesome but here's the thing My children, even though they're basically grown adults, 23, 21, and 17, kind of grown adults, um, their favorite thing is the stockings and the whole Santa thing. And I want to show you just a visual of why my children love the stocking thing so much. This is my stocking. Isn't that so cute? Made with love, by hand, by my grandma. And about two toys fit in here. Um... So then my mom, in the hopes of following in her mom's footstep, knit this bad boy (laughs) for my kids. So I'm just telling you, my kids are all about the stockings, and they stretch, and they go this way, like 178 toys in there. So (laughs) that's what I have to live up to. Okay, that was all just intro, it's not the real teaching. I, but I've been thinking about Christmas, of course, thinking about this topic. And um, what I've started to realize now that um, Chuck, Chuck and I both live in Waterloo, our parents, both sets of grandparents, our parents are still alive, and um, my kids are far away, but then they come home. And what I've started to realize is what I most want for Christmas is the presence of the people I love. I, I want to be with them, and I want them to be with me. I could care less about most of the other stuff. And it just got me thinking that, you know, you and I give gifts. We give gifts to each other at Christmas as a symbol, as a reminder to each other of the gift that God gave us that very first Christmas night, which really was, if you think hard about it theologically, it was the gift of his presence, the creator of all that exists, the one who at the very beginning spoke the universe into being and who still holds it in his hands, the one who exists in perfect, seamless, loving, three-in-one trinity community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God came to this earth to be with us And the gospel writer, Matthew, there's two real gospel stories, Advent stories in the gospel. In in Matthew, he has a shorter one. Luke is the longer one. We're going to be um, uh, walking through again first and second chapter of Luke for our daily scriptures. I encourage you to join along. But listen to what Matthew writes as he kind of ends this story of Jesus' birth. He says in Matthew 1, verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Now, I got the question after the 830. Well, then why didn't they call him Emmanuel? Why did they call him Jesus? Uh, just a quick answer is that in the Greek, this actually has much more a sense of saying someday his people will figure out who he really was and they will, re- they will recall that he was Emmanuel, that he was God with us. Does that make sense? So it wasn't like a prophecy about what his actual given name was. That was helpful to me. Um, But it's this whole issue of God being with us. And from what I can tell, from the preponderance of evidence in the whole of Scripture, this is God's greatest desire to be with us, to be with his children, and to have us be with him. All through the pages of scripture, we read this phrase that God is with his people, with Abraham, with Moses, with Esther, with David. He was with the prophets. He was with Mary, and he was with Peter and James and John and many others too. This phrase repeats itself all throughout the scriptures from Genesis Chapter 3, where we we read this kind of confusing, mysterious statement that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, and then it it flows all the way through until the very end of the scriptures in Revelation 21, where John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, This is the picture of the end of it all. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and of course with women, and he will live with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's what God wants more than anything. And we see this also in John's opening chapter. John you know, doesn't have what we would consider to be a traditional Advent story or birth story. Instead he has this other kind of huge sweeping narrative but in a way, it ties in to what we're heading toward in this season as well. You know John chapter 1, he starts out by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. This beautiful, big narrative. And then he, he says in verse 14, And this word, this word that was God, this word that was with God, this word that created the start of everything, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want to just point out something, maybe you guys know this already. The Greek word that's translated there into make, made his dwelling among us. Some writers' um, translations have um, the word became flesh and lived among us. Eugene Peterson um, has it as uh, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, which I kind of like. But the, the, the original Greek has a little bit of a different feel. Sometimes it's translated, it has a better translation, as he pitched his tent among us. Which is kind of cool. God's maybe a camper. I didn't know that about him. There's a strong scriptural backing for Orchard Hill West, any um, people who go on that. It also um, has a feeling of this word tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And when the Jews, the people with the history of the Old Testament behind them, would read what John was writing, they knew that he was referring back to the tabernacle, which was this House of worship, kind of, built by the Israelites as they were making their way out of slavery in Egypt and toward the promised land. God had said to them in Exodus 25, 8, then have them make a sanctuary, make a tabernacle for me, and I will dwell among them. I will live with them. So when people read what John was writing in the first chapter, verse 14, it implied... That just as God had formerly been with his people in the tent, in the tabernacle, in this place of worship, which Moses had them build in the wilderness, now, in a fuller, richer, deeper sense, this God was taking up residence on this earth in the person of Jesus. God with us, in a new and powerful way. Philip Yancey says this, he says, Under the cover of night... God stole into the enemy's camp incognito. The ancient of days disguised as a newborn. Isn't that cool? He says the incarnation, God becoming flesh, was a daring raid into enemy territory. The miracle of Christmas is according to the scriptures that the God of this universe became flesh and dwelt on this earth. And the incarnation... This God giving of himself to humanity, I believe, is truly his greatest gift. And I, my, my deepest encouragement to all of us, no matter what this Advent season is full of for you, whether it's tests or whether it's shopping or whether it's trying to figure out how you're going to manage your crazy family systems throughout the whole holiday season, mm. anybody in a dysfunctional, Okay, I'm the only one. But anyway, you got a lot to think about, some of you. Um, I want you to think about, meditate on, ponder this idea of the incarnation, the amazing gift that God gives us of himself. As you read, if you follow along with the daily scripture, spend some time pondering this. And one thing I, I, I want us to push toward a little bit right now this morning, I want us to think about a little bit, is that the incarnation should remind us that it is always God who initiates. It is always God who initiates. It is not up to us. And this idea, I hope, I mean, and I know it does for me, should bring us great comfort. I've been um, singing, well, I, I listen to Handel's Messiah in my car, the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing, from the beginning all the way to the end, not the abridged version, I'm talking the whole thing. And I sing along. Oh, I'm so good. The baritone, I hit the high soprano. If you guys see me around, you might want to just roll your windows down. Get a little concert. But here's what I noticed. Do you know what the first lines are of Handel's Messiah? Anybody? Yes? Yes. Good job. Because if you were wrong, what was I going to do? Comfort. Comfort ye my people. Handel writes, A polling from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what Simon Tugwell writes. He says, as long as we imagine it is we who have to look for God, we often lose heart. But it is the other way around. He is looking for us. And so we can afford to recognize that very often we are not looking for God. Far from it. We are often in full flight from him, in high rebellion against him. And he knows that and he's taken it into account and he has followed us into our own darkness. And there where we thought to finally escape him, we run straight into his arms. Our hope, our comfort is in his determination to save us and he will not give in. He will not give in on any of us. And this is the good news of Christmas You see, that God comes to us. We just have, as humans, this natural tendency to think that we have to somehow make our way to God. You know? Get good enough so that God will like us. But the incarnation and the whole story of this thing wipes that idea out. God does all the heavy lifting. He does all the work of this story and it is our job to simply receive his presence and his grace as pure gift. And we don't worship a figurehead god, right? This god who is far off and aloof who stands for some kind of ideal that we can never reach and then he stands there and folds his arm and arms and waits for us. We worship An active, action-taking God who always makes the first move. And I want to drive this point home even a little deeper this morning. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Into this world came God incarnate, Jesus. Fully God, fully human. God the Son. The one who said in John chapter 14, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He came into this broken world. He made the raid as Yancey said, because things here were terribly wrong. The gap between God and humanity was too massive for anyone else to fix except God. And I want you, again, think about this with me in a, in a way that can help us sear this into our minds so that we can always remember he's the one who does the work. Do you know how, it, how humans seem to take great comfort in tragedy or natural disaster when the most senior person in charge shows up? comes there to be with people in the midst of their tragedy. I, I've i been thinking about this. For some reason, it makes them feel, it makes us feel like something's going to get done, like a problem will be solved if the top dog is on the ground with us. Um, if you remember, if, if you guys remember 9-11, I don't know how old everybody was during that horrifying day. And I don't remember if if George Bush came on that exact day, that evening he showed up and stood on that smoking pile of rubble and spoke to a whole nation that felt like everything around them was collapsing or if it was the next day. But it was a profound moment in the life of our country. And somehow we felt great comfort that the most powerful person in this country had shown up. And then more recently, President Obama, you know, during that whole sandy wipeout of the East Coast... Um he showed up and he, you know, they t- take photos of him hugging people. And there was, for some reason, this great source of comfort for the people on the ground. But here's the thing. Those two presidents didn't actually do anything themselves, right? I mean, they delegated and they, you know, got money flowing in but it wasn't like president bush said all right you know give me my hard hat and i'm going to start digging in or it's not like barack obama said to this woman um take me home and let me start digging out the soggy insulation with you right they they were not actually going to do anything they were simply there as symbolic figureheads but here's i mean there's a million differences between the incarnation and those pictures but here's the hugest difference that i just want you to think about when god showed up on the ground. He didn't just show up as a figurehead. He showed up to do all the work. Not just part of it, all of it. When he came to this earth, he came himself, and he did all the work himself. That is what is so amazing about the Christian story, starting with Christmas, the whole story of the incarnation, and then our slow march as followers of Christ through winter toward Ash Wednesday, and then toward spring, and the cross, and the resurrection. This is all God's work, because he loves us. And he could have chosen any form of fixing the problem of mankind's estrangement from him. He could have stayed far above the fray of humanity and just thought up some method of rescuing us where he didn't get mud on his face or feel the pain or deal with the heartache of being human or risk people he loved rejecting him. But he chose none of those routes. He chose to send himself. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, this is a f- phenomenal. Just a few words. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Just God's work. In the midst of humanity's spiritual 9-11, in the midst of the hurricane of human sin, God showed up and he surveyed the damage and he loved us so much that he did all the work to make things right. And what does he ask in return? Have you ever thought about that? What does God ask from us? I think that one thing that God wants from us, I don't know if it's the most important thing, but I think it's really, 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 really important, is that he wants an answer from us to a very simple question. And I want to look... Um, briefly at a story that I think helps us think about this question. We don't often tie this story to Advent or Christmas, but I believe that it can offer us something really important to ponder this time of year. In the last chapter of the Gospel of John, um, this is after the resurrection, and Jesus has appeared to his disciples, and uh, he's going to talk to Peter. And if you remember... Correctly. And Peter, on the night that Jesus was arrested, despite all of his admonition that he wouldn't deny Jesus, denied him three times. And so now Jesus is back and he's real and he's living and Peter's got to face him. And if you can just imagine the shame and the guilt and the despair that he feels about who he is and how deeply he's failed. Um, that's the setup of this story and familiar words, but listen with new ears When they had finished eating, I love that part because they all had to eat first before they had a hard discussion Remember this over the holidays Okay You're going to have a hard discussion with your parents eat some cookies or something you'll be better So when they'd finished eating jesus said to simon peter Simon son of john. Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. And the third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. <laughs> I love Peter. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. When we read this story, we tend to focus on what Jesus asks Peter to do because we like action. We just want to know, what am I supposed to go do? But I want to talk for just a minute about Jesus' question to Peter because I believe it is ultimately God's burning question to you and to me. And that is this. Do you love me? Can you imagine being asked that by the resurrected Jesus? Plus he called Simon like his full Peter's full given name, Simon son of John. Do you love me? Jesus asks, "Do you love me?" It's kind of a showstopper of a question, I think. And it's one we don't think about very much. We ask each other if we believe. We ask each other if we serve. We ask each other if we obey. But very rarely do we ask each other or even ask ourselves the question, Do I love him? Do I love him? Yeah, God wants our obedience. He wants our service. He wants our belief. But I believe at the very heart of who God is, what he wants to know from his people who he came to rescue and he did all the work for himself, what he wants to know is, do you love me? And you can hear it all over. Oh, my bookmark's gone. I have to find Hosea while you guys listen to me. All over the scriptures, you can, this is going to take a while. All over the scriptures, you can hear his voice, the voice of God, especially in the prophets. Please, Lord, help me find Hosea, like, miraculously right now. Hmm. Tell me, Kurt, where is it? Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, there it is. Hmm. Listen, Listen to this voice of God through the voice of Hosea, what he writes. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. His chosen people, my chosen people, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. I sacrificed to other gods. But It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. God says, I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. And I bent down, down to feed them. But my people are determined to turn from me. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me and all my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. I will not turn and devastate you. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. Over and over in the voice of the prophets, you hear this stream of thinking from the God of the universe. You hear it from Jesus when he quotes Isaiah in Matthew 15. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, I think God wants to know, do you love me? And I think when he asks us that, he calls us by our full given name. Alice, Marie, Dutton, Shiree, do you love me? R.C. Sproul, who's a great Reformed theologian, recognizes this problem, and he says this. He says, the supreme irony is that although God is altogether lovely as fallen creatures, we do not love him. He is worthy and deserves our love. We owe him our love, yet we do not love him. And on the other side, we are altogether unlovely by his standards. There's nothing in us to commend us to God, and he does not owe us his love. But the staggering fact remains, he loves us, and he loves us to the extent that he gave his only begotten son, God the Son, remember, to us. And really, what he asks in return is our heart and our love and he will wait for an answer he will wait until the end of your life if he has to and he'll keep coming after us this one who is called the hound of heaven he is on our trail each one of our trails and he wants to know do you love me and then c.s lewis says but god is not proud he will have us even though we have shown we prefer everything else to him See, what I'm learning as I get older and my parents get older and my kids get older, not just is it that I want their presence. I don't mean presence. I mean presence. You know what I mean. I want them as people. But in the end, you know what I've also realized? What I most want for my own children is not just that they be with me out of duty or obligation. It's not just that they follow my advice on how to live because they just feel they have to. I don't want them to serve me out of the belief that they have to earn my favor or that they're somehow scared of me. What I want most of all is what I believe God wants most of all from his children. I want to know that they love me and that they want to be with me. So this Advent season, these next few busy weeks, will you remember that this is the story of God coming into this disaster himself and doing all the work? And will you ponder this idea that all of our human efforts and all of our striving and all of our good service and all of our busyness and running here and there, all these things, no matter how good they are on the surface, are far less important to your Father? than how you would honestly answer the question. Do you love me? And I pray that you'll take some time over the coming weeks. You know, I don't know how that works for you. I don't know what works best for you to feel connected to God, whether it's some late night sitting by the Christmas tree or going for a walk, you know, or whether it's here in church somehow or in a quiet place where you can connect but would you do that? Would you connect with your father in some kind of a way? And if you don't feel like you love him, will you ask him to help you learn to love him? Because I think he wants to know. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to comprehend how much you love us. It's hard for us to know what it costs you come into this messy world all we know is that you've done it all and we just get to be the recipients of your grace would you teach us what it means to love you and to want to be with you thank you for your body broken and your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins